The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, uh, we are going to be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got a few in the back. Uh, Those are for you to take. Uh, We like the Bible. We're big fans of it here. And so uh, what we do is we go through the book of the, uh, a book of the Bible, and we are starting our new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so um, the series, Good News for Bad Christians, we're exploring this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. And so while you guys are turning to 1 Corinthians, I'm actually going to read, I'm going to start us out in looking at this by reading from Acts 18. We're going to start at the very beginning of the church in Corinth, look at Acts 18. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, or verses 1 through 11. I'm going to pray for us because we need God's help to not only hear his word, but for it to change us. So I'm going to read from Acts 18 to get us started in the book of Corinthians. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had demanded all the Jews leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for, uh, for there were tradesmen, there were tent makers by trade. <coughs> Excuse me. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to Jews that, Christ was, that the Christ was Jesus, and when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray. Father, As we do this very moment, teach the word of God here, I pray that you would be among us. God, that we, just like the Corinthian church, are a hot mess, and we need your help, and I pray that you would meet us here because you're a great, patient, good God who loves to stoop down and sit at the kids' table with us. So I pray that you would be with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I don't know um, if you're new to Jesus or you're not familiar with the Bible, who is this person, the Apostle Paul, because he seems like a baller, right? Um, This guy was a beast. He would show up to town, and he would just kind of basically say, um, here he's going to throw down with the word and just say, here's what God says, and uh, you better believe it or I'm done. You know, like he just kind of draws conditions. Paul was the, um, he is what you call a church planter, but that's basically like an entrepreneur, right? Somebody who's just like, Go get them for Jesus. Let's start new things and see what God does. Um, and Paul, the apostle, was like the extraordinaire of the extraordinaire 
of all the church planters and entrepreneurs that ever lived, right? If you're like doing like a who's who list, right, and like of all the history, um, you know, who's the top 10, Paul takes the cake because in the Bible, uh, we hear how Paul not only plants 14 churches in the book of Acts, that's the official number, right? Uh, almost certainly he planted between 30 and 50 churches in his life, right? He was, he was a church planter for 35 years, and um, he just basically, go, every two years, he was going from one place to the next, starting things up. And uh, one of those churches is the church of Corinth. It was, not only was he just kind of like this great, just kind of like go get him type guy, but he had a tender heart for his people that he cared for. So he, we have these 14 churches that he planted in the book, in the book of Acts. But then in the, the rest of the Bible, I don't know if you know what an epistle is, but an epistle is basically just a long letter with the main point, trying to help people grow. And he, ha- he has about seven different churches, seven or eight different churches that he writes letters to, which make up the 13 letters that we have of the Apostle Paul. And of those, we have the book of the, the Corinthian church here in front of us. And one thing to remember is that Paul writes these letters, as we're kind of getting started in this new series on, the, on 1 Corinthians, Paul writes the letters not to say to us, uh, don't be like these people. <laughs> Right, he's not. They're, they're not like um, a call out of like, hey, these are horrible people, and you guys better not be like these Corinthian people. There's certainly characteristics that we don't want to emulate. Right, they had certain things going on among them, but the reason Paul writes these letters is because more more fundamentally to what's going on in the Bible is that God's on mission among messy people, and messy people need help to know who God is and how to walk with Him. Right? That's the main point. That's why all these letters and all these books of the Bible are here, is that God's on mission to rescue people who are incredibly messy. Right? They just got junk going on in their hearts. They got crazy stuff in their heads. And they got things going on in their lives that don't make any sense at all. And God loves those people. Like God wants those people to be a part of his family. It is an incredibly messy mission. And God gives us these letters to engage and sit among, like we were saying in our prayer, to sit down at the kids' table to help us get uh, a taste of who he is. Um, It's an incredibly messy uh, table, just like a kid's table, right? And if you've been around the Bible, um, any 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 period of time, the Corinthian church kind of stands out (laughs) among the rest, right? I don't know if you guys know who Conor McGregor is, right? MMA fighter, the notorious, the dude's crazy. I mean, he's just the biggest loudmouth in all of sports ever, right? Corinthian church is like the Conor McGregor <laughs> of the New Testament. They are just loud and crazy and insane, and uh, except they don't have the win record that Conor does. And um, we could tend to kind of turn the Corinthian church into a punching bag. When it, here's all the things they're doing wrong. Here's all the things they've messed up on. Here's all the ways that they don't have their act together and just punch on them. But the Corinthian church, um, the Corinthian church is here in this Bible to teach us something about ourselves. Because really, kind of like my three-year-olds, right? I don't know if you've ever had a three-year-old in your house, whether you have kids or not, like a three-year-old is basically just kind of like the inside out of our hearts, right? <laughs> right? They just basically just like, they put the heart that's on the inside and just put it out. They're just like, I don't care if everybody in the mall hears me or sees me or looks down on my parents. I want the cookie. You know, that's just the way they operate. And they throw down to get the cookie. The church in Corinth is basically just like us. We don't have our act together, and here it is. Welcome to the party, right? That's the church in Corinth. 
And God has something to teach us as we go through this book. I, I just want you to know I'm excited about what God's going to be doing in our church, in our hearts, in our lives together as we begin to look through this book. It's a mere 16 chapters. It's one of the longer letters. So we're going to be in this for a while. We're going to take our time. But I'm excited. God's going to be doing something in our hearts through this time. Because I don't know if you picked up on this. Church in Corinth, in Acts 18, verse 10, it starts because God says this to Paul. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you and harm you. And this is the main for I have many in the city who are my people. Right? This loudmouth, crazy, uh, ridiculous church, they existed because God had people in Corinth, God has people in Manchester, God has people in the area of Manchester that are his, and they belong, we belong to him. So we're going to turn to the first few verses of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and read how Paul then turns and addresses these people. What does Paul say to these people that, are, that belong to God? We're going to get into the details of all the mess that they've got going on. But here's how Paul, we're just going to look at the first three verses and kind of look at this like, you know, like you have like a, a window in the front door of a house. These are going to be our window in the front door of Corinthians. We're going to look through this window and say, what is God showing us about where he's taking us in this first, first letter to the Corinthians? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus to, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as we orient into 1 Corinthians, this is what Paul is drawing us into. There is a gigantic mess going on in their lives. There is a big mess going on. They don't have their act together. And Jesus, Paul is calling them and saying, he's reminding them, Jesus cares about people who don't have their act together. That's, that's what we're looking at. And if we were to say, like, what's the main point of this letter or these first few verses to kind of get us oriented? is that Jesus' good news is sufficient for the everyday mess of our lives. Jesus' good news is sufficient for the everyday mess. Can we go back to the uh, previous slide there? Jesus' good news... Oh, did I not get it? Not make it in? All right. That's my fault. Not, not, not slide person's fault. My fault. Jesus' good news is sufficient for the everyday mess of our lives. You see, uh, there's a lot of mess that we're going to encounter in this. And Jesus is sufficient for it. Paul is writing him and saying, here's the deal. Got a lot of mess going on. Jesus is enough. So we're going to be kind of breaking this into three, three kind of handlebars to help us get into this first, first few verses and kind of look through the window to see the rest of the first Corinthians. It's going to pick up and say, all right, what is this good news? We're calling this series Good News for Bad Christians. What's the, that's the main point of this whole series. Good news for who? We're going to pick up verse 1 and 2. We're going to say, good news for those who feel broken. Who are all the, who, who's this hot mess? <laughs> and what defines them? Who are they? Where, how would you describe them? The first way you could describe them is they're broken people. Good news for those who feel broken. Verse 1 and 2. We're going to pause in the middle of verse 2. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus to our brother and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Why is Paul starting out by saying, hey, you guys are a hot mess. You're sanctified in Christ Jesus. Why is he starting out like that? That's, that's kind of an odd way to start out a letter. Like if you're, if you're writing a letter to, you know, maybe like your brother or sister whose life is just like a total wreck, how do you start out by saying, hey, you're sanctified, bro. Here's what's going on. Let me get, let's kind of calibrate ourselves. Let's kind of get oriented to the whole Corinthian thing. We're at Corinth. We keep saying this name, Corinth. Can we, can we throw this map here? Do you guys know the Mediterranean? I don't know. Anybody remember like their European history, all that stuff from high school or whatever? No. All right. Here's a little history class, right? Or geography. All right. Remember the boot right there? Italy. See the big boot right there? Yeah, the big boot kicking Sicily out of the Mediterranean. Right back behind it, there is Greece and Athens. That's the province. That's kind of the area, the state, so to speak, of Corinth, where Corinth is. And can we go to the next slide? Kind of zoom in on that area. See, there's... Achaia, this is the ancient world. Achaia and Corinth is that, I don't know if I can get up there. You see this like little red dot right here? Right there, that guy right there. That's Corinth. Corinth was a city that had a lot of things going on. And as a city itself, um, it was built uh, to be a, a mega house of, of industry and commerce. It was kind of like the Boston Bay right, where there's a lot of things that came into the area through it, right? It was, you see how it's this critical kind of like area to get through to the other side and then to get uh, products like, you know, clothes and wine and cheese and food and animals and all that stuff to Rome. It's like a major, major trade route. So they had a lot of money going down in Corinth. They were real rich. Like it, they were so rich that even at the time, there were rich people who said not everybody can get into Corinth, right? <laughs> not everybody can get the VIP pass to go visit and be in Corinth. Like they were, so this is the, the upper one percenters, so to speak, were saying, well, there's one percenters above us that can't get into Corinth. They were rich. Not only they had a lot of money going on, but they had a lot of power, right? The city of Corinth was really old and had a lot of cool things going on, but it basically died about 50... 50 years, you know, 44 B.C. Remember, B.C. stands for before Christ or before the Common Era, whichever you're using. Around 44 B.C., Julius Caesar, you guys remember Julius Caesar from Shakespeare? That guy, he was an actual historical figure. Um, (laughs) He came in and restarted the city. So it it had, like, his stamp of approval on it, and it was a major political powerhouse for here's where all these Roman guys are going to beat up on all those... uh, Athens and Greek guys, because Rome is better, right? Julius comes in. He sets up the political situation. It is a major political powerhouse, right? And then you add to that that not only do they have the money and the power, they had a lot of crazy sex stuff going on, right? They had the temple to Athea, uh, I'm sorry, Aphrodite's, where it famously had a thousand cult prostitutes there. So if you're kind of adding all this up, right, money, sex, and power, right? They had all three of those going big time in Corinth. That's the setting of the Corinthian church. Like, they're not just some sort of, like, little potunk town out in the middle of nowhere. This is a major, major city with a lot of things going on. People who are highly independent, who were addicted to their pleasures, people who had commodified pleasure and power dynamics. Um, there was a lot of wealth, highly individualistic people. Does that... Does that sound familiar at all? Does that, does that sound like, hey, maybe that's kind of like New Hampshire today or America in general, right? Got money, sex, and power going crazy. Highly individualist people, 
that's one of the reasons why I think this book is going to be so relevant for us because it speaks to our culture. It speaks um, in, the, in the way we feel and the way we dress. And you can imagine these people in Corinth engaging with Paul. He comes and says, God, who is pure and holy and good, came and died in your place so that you become his sons and daughters. They're confronted with this Jesus. And they begin to realize, I do not have my act together. Right? You, you, you don't actually ever know how broken you are or how bad you are until you run into somebody that's like, like got their act together. You know what I mean? Like, like you ever like, um, like, I thought I was good at writing essays in high school. <laughs> like, and then Michelle, who's, if you know Michelle, she's brilliant beyond description. She took a red pen and just like X'd out the whole thing, you know, just all, all wrong. You, you're just a horrible person to start over. Do you even know English? You know, that's how this is, right? You confront with Jesus and you're like, oh my gosh, I am so broken. Like these dynamics in my heart are so crazy. I don't know what to do, right? But here's Paul reminding us, verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, Right? These people who have all this crazy stuff going on in their lives and their culture that, that are bread and buttered on how to be crazy, right? have no concept of what it means to live in God's good designs. Paul reminds them, he starts out by saying, verse 2, to the church of who? Who, who does the church belong to? Whose is it? Remember, we just looked at Acts 18. Paul's the one who, church, the church planner who started it, right? It's like saying, King's Cross, Jacob's church, dead wrong. <laughs> right? This is the church of who? Of God himself. He's the one who pursued the Corinthian people and amidst all this mess, right? Do you remember in Acts 18 where it says, for I have many in this city who are my people, right? They, those people didn't even know that they belonged to God yet, but he was pursuing them to make them a part of his family so that Paul writes them in verse 2, to the church of God, of God in Corinth, a people in a specific location with all their mess and all the craziness going on who belong to him. This is a pursuing God. Actually, we are all just kind of like like little like mini church planters under the great church planter because God himself is the church planter, right? He is the one who starts and founds and plants churches. He's the one who starts it. So when Paul starts out this letter to people, he's going to, and you're going to go through this letter it's going to get crazy, right? Paul's going to be, you know, correcting them left and right. He's going to be calling them out left and right, calling them on the mat. All those strong words that Paul uses come after reminding himself and them, who's your daddy, right? God himself. All right, this is God's mission. I have many in this city who are my people. Yes, broken people, but in the strangest of stories, God wants you and me, people who are incredibly broken, who don't know how to do relationships well, who don't know how to think wisely, who, who don't know how to parent or do marriage or how to do singleness or how to do our jobs in a way where Jesus is the center governing force of our minds. Don't know how to do them. In God. We, we don't have our acts together. God says, yeah, you're mine. To the church of God, in Manchester, a bunch of broken people who don't have their lives together, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Again, 
It's not exactly how I would start out. But it's a church of God who are set apart. That's what that word sanctified means. They're set apart. We're, we're set aside. That doesn't mean uh, speak a different language. That doesn't mean you're not, no longer talk to the people that were your friends. You, you become a Christian and somehow you don't talk. You kind of wall off and don't talk to your non-Christian friends. It's a position, right? We, we, if you've been around the Bible much or, you, uh, or you're taking the New City Catechism class, we talk about the word sanctification, this is not the same. They're the same words, obviously, but same, different ideas. Sanctification is this, I'm growing to be more like Jesus, right? Sanctified is I belong to Jesus, right? It's a position, right? It's not, it's not a journey. It's a status. Again, Paul is starting us out by saying, you who are people who belong to the God who pursues broken people, right? You are located in Jesus, Right, which is helpful for us to remember that the church is for people who don't have their act together. Right, let's just remember that. Right, right. You don't take if my car breaks down, which it often does. I take it to Jason over here, just a couple blocks, and he fixes my car. I don't take my broken car, <laughs> which, to the doctor. Right, the doctor does not know how to put a, an engine back together. Right, the doctor knows how to put bones and body and all that stuff back together and help us like function well, right? But uh, the mechanic knows how to put my car back together. Broken lives belong to Jesus, and they come to the church to find healing, hope, restoration, right? Which means the church is always going to be a messy place, right? Like if we all kind of start like shopping at Gap and getting our food at Whole Foods and start doing all the things the same way, that's messed up, man. Like, we can't do that. We are a messed up people. By the way, the aspiration in life is not to shop at Gap and get your food at Whole Foods. That's not what I'm saying, right? <laughs> it is, the church is for broken people, right? Which means that the very people that we live with and live next to and work next to are the very people that Jesus wants to be a part of his family, right? And often our own hesitations to bring and invite and want those people with us, is that it's like, I don't know how we're going to handle this. We, should, we bring somebody who's got these issues into church. I don't know. Yeah, you don't know, because the church doesn't belong to you. The church belongs to God, and he's the one that welcomes broken people. And we have to remember this as well, because sometimes, I don't know if this happens to you, sometimes we get a little bit focused on the brokenness in people's lives, and we forget the God who loves broken people. Right? The, there's a lot that happens with these people in Corinth that uh, is all messed up. Paul, actually, we're going to look at this next week. He goes, rather than correcting them to start out with, he goes to thanking God, for, thanking God for the grace of God that he sees in their lives first. That's where he goes first, verses 4 to 9. Right? We, we have to remember that we have to, that, that, brokenness in people's lives is set in the context of God's redemptive painting of who they are. Um, because uh, if you're anything like me, uh, the church, um, we talk about the church being for broken people, but without God in the center of it, the church is a horrible idea, <laughs> right? Like, let's bring together all these people who don't have their acts together, actually don't even have the same priorities, and let's put them together and try to accomplish something together, <laughs> Like, the church is a horrible, like, it's a horrible idea apart from Jesus, right? The, this is not a social club. 
This is not like an action group. This is all about knowing, following, and enjoying Jesus, right? But without Jesus, like, we're basically just like a reality TV show without the editors, right? (laughs) You know? So, all right. We're going to keep moving on. The Corinthians, the, 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 the book of 1 Corinthians not only shows us that good news is for those who are broken, but it's for good news for those who feel unwelcome. We're going to pick up here again in verse 2. This is the good news for those who feel unwelcome. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Why does he call them saints, right? He's just said it's a church of God who are sanctified, called to be saints. Right? Saints is this word, um, I mean, if, unless you're an NFL fan, you're kind of like, I don't really use the word saints a lot, right? The saints is, a, is just basically a word to say people who are holy like God. The, the emphasis... Um, we're going to, in the, as we look through the first Corinthians, we're going to see a lot of ways in which brokenness expresses itself in our lives. And we do often say, I'm a sinner. But the New Testament emphasis is on you are now a new creature in Jesus that is made to be holy, made to grow in holiness, made to grow to be more like him, right? That's who you're, that's your, your, your spiritual DNA is no longer primarily sinner, your spiritual DNA is primarily saint, growing to be more like Jesus. Yes, we still have sin in our lives. And this is an area in my own life I'm trying to kind of course correct. Of like, I tend to be kind of like, I'm a real jerk. <laughs> and I don't have my act together. That's true. But, but God has saved me to be more like Jesus. And this is the, the direction. But, so that, that dynamic of uh, grace is large enough to welcome all of the ways that we don't have our act together to make us to be more like Jesus, right? That, that the nature of grace is that it's welcoming. But if we know ourselves, we feel like we shouldn't be welcomed very much. But that's why Paul says, call to be saints, not just saints, your individual spiritual mission, go and enjoy it, have fun, read a few books, walk with Jesus. Call to be saints together with those who in every place Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Right? This isn't this isn't like a niche group, right? Like uh, you get like your uh, internet chat groups or whatever, um, your Facebook groups. They're kind of devoted to like one type of thing, right? You know, uh, Fender guitars or whatever, right? This this indip- this um invitation that Paul holds out to them, to the Corinthians, I think they'd forgotten this. They'd kind of gotten so consumed with their kind of way of doing things, right, that they'd forgotten that grace not only welcomes us, but changes us. And it, we need other people to help us remember that, right? I think they, the Corinthian church, they had this whole dynamic. They have kind of what you might call like free gracers type thing. Um, I'm not exactly sure the right way to describe it, but this dynamic where it's like, don't worry, just do whatever you're going to do. It doesn't matter if you sin. God's okay with it. He's got your back. He's written the check for your sins. The ledger's clean. Just go war- go and, and, and have at it. That, they had that dynamic going on. Or they had the opposite side. It's crazy to think, just so you know, the Corinthian church was likely like 120 people. Like it's not, we're not talking like some like huge mega church, 
we're talking about like basically like this a church like two or three si- times the size of our church, right? Not not much bigger than ours. They had all this crazy stuff going on. And so they had the, the people were like, hey, go and just kind of enjoy. Don't worry about it. And then they had on the other side people who are like ultra legalistic and like you shouldn't be doing this. You got to follow the letter of the law. Get blah blah blah. Got to keep it together. They had those dynamics going on, and they had people who are like, well, I've had a spiritual experience, and I don't need the people of God to teach me or help me or anything like that. It's all this crazy stuff, but it was because they had gotten so wrapped up in their ind- individual dynamics of how they thought and lived that they had forgotten that they had been welcomed by the God of grace into his family to be with his family under his grace. This is, uh, feels very similar to our context, right? New Englanders, we are very highly independent, <laughs> right? Uh, we like our independence. We like our congregational votes. We like to have our independence and our, and our um, we want to have everything under control. Nobody, right, in New Hampshire, right, live free or die. Nobody can tell me what to do. This is a helpful correction to us. This is a part of why we talk about being a part of Acts 29 and Sovereign Grace, because we are together with other people who help correct us and help us grow and adjust so that we can get out of kind of like our myopic, how we think what welcoming looks like so that we can be growing to be a more welcoming church. Right, this is, um, this is one of the things where Acts 29 is committed to being a diverse family, a, a, glo- a, family, a diverse family of global churches or something like that, right? Drew, what is it? You're laughing at me now. I'm messing it up. Yeah, a global family of diverse churches, right? And I know that diversity can kind of get thrown around, like what does diversity mean and all that stuff. But frankly, it's helpful for us to have churches for, like, frankly, we don't have a lot of diversity um, in our city, right? If you, if you know the, like, the numbers of our city, right, there's like 92% Caucasian and then 8% ethnic diversity, right? But the studies show our city in 20 years is going to be 20% ethnic diversity and 80% Caucasian, right? I want to learn from my neighbors so that we can become a more diverse and welcoming church so that those people not only because we want to just be like some sort of like United Nations of a church, but we want to be a church that reflects the, the, the diversity of our city. That's what we want to We want to be a church that reflects the diversity of our city. And we need other people outside of our churches, our church, to help us grow in that, right? So you got Doug Logan running Church in Hard Places, Acts 29, great brother, and he's helping us grow and how to think about what does it mean to be a more diverse church, right? What does it mean to grow so that all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, are, are self-consciously helping us become more of a welcoming church so that more a range of people can be the ones that are called saints here at King's Cross. You guys tracking with me? Yeah, I, the grace is broader than our perspective, and so we want to insist on keeping the global family of Jesus in mind both for our holiness and our witness. All right, we're going we're gonna to wrap up here. I, I just want to say, just wanna, I hope that as we work through this, we will, we will see ways we can grow to be more of a welcoming church. We are a welcoming church. I just want you guys to know, this isn't like a correction. I think we're a very welcoming church, but are there ways that God could be calling us to grow and become more welcoming in ways that we can't, can't imagine right now? I pray that God's going to use 1 Corinthians to help us do that. 
All right, we're going to pick up here, verse 3, right? We were, this is a great thing. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, we were going through Matthew, and we were, like, doing, like, these huge chunks of the Bible at a time, and now we're just going, like, verse by verse, right? <laughs> I kind of find it a little refreshing. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? This is where Paul is laying out, this is good news for those who feel desperate, <laughs> right? People who are broken, who are needy, who feel unwelcomed and uninvited, who've experienced the grace of God, will see not only who he is, but see how, they're, how desperate they are in need for, for his help and grace in their lives. Right, so this is where Paul ends his greeting. He says, this is good news for those who feel desperate. And how is it good news? Verse 3, grace to you. Right, these three little words begin, there is a fountain, a mighty ocean of grace that this opens up for us right here. And you don't quite see it until you go to the last verses of the letter. So if you, if you have a Bible, I'll read it for you if you don't. 1 Corinthians 16, 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Right? He starts out, grace to you. <laughs> and then he ends 1 Corinthians 16. Grace be with you. And what is in between the entire letter of grace? That's the, the letter, the words of the 1 Corinthians is the way that we get the grace, right? That's where the grace comes from, right? It's not some sort of spiritual experience. Now you take your Bible, you set aside, you go stand in the woods, and then you get it, right? This, that's fine if you want to go that, by the way. The grace, the grace is in God's word itself, right? This is, if you think about this, God himself stands behind every page and his face is uttering every word to you so that it is the God of grace who gives you grace through the word of grace, right? <laughs> this is the grace. We don't invite the Bible into our lives, right? We don't say, you know what? I've really got some issues I need to work out. Oh, thankfully, I've got this manual. Let me figure this out. The Bible invites us into its life. The Bible is the grace. It is the life of God for us. And it invites us into it because we are such desperate people. We need God's help. So, so when we come in, we come in to get the grace. And how do we get it? Right? His name has been mentioned four times in these three verses. Paul called to be, by the will of God, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, The way the grace in this, these words is activated in our desperate need is through Jesus Christ. That is how these words change people who have a hot mess of a life, who need God's help. Right, this is what it, when we talk about the word being like gospel-centered, that's what we mean getting all the life that we need for every issue that we have in our lives from Jesus Christ himself. So I just, I just want to do a scan. I'm just going to scan through the letter and show you. Here's how we're going to see gospel-centered life, God, Jesus' life from the very words of the Bible for all of our desperate need as we go through this letter, right? These, are, these aren't sermon headings or anything like that, but there's just like a sketch for you to get a sense of how is Jesus entering into the hot... What are the, what are the messes of our lives that he enters into, right? So chapter 1 status, right? How do you think about who you are and where you stand, right? Here we, status, like 
how many followers do you have in your life, right? If you think this status is not a big deal, right? See, see what your heart does when you see that somebody is no longer your friend on Facebook, right? <laughs> right? What's your status, right? Wisdom. Chapter one as well, that second half of the book of, uh, of chapter one. How do you live li- wisely in a world that's gone mad and is trying to market you to think crazy thoughts, right? Right. Chapter one is all about, right? and, and Paul doesn't pull any punches, right? This is where I love Paul, right? He's scrappy, right? Chapter one, verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers, right? Let me just say this to you, church. Not many of you were wise <laughs> according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, right? Hey, you guys are dumb. <laughs> you, guys don't, you guys don't know what you're thinking, right? Paul says, Paul is going to show us how Jesus helps us think wisely in God's world, right? And then chapter 2, he's going to show us not only how we, how we live wisely, but how do we think, right? It, Christians tend to kind of have this arrogance about them at times of like, well, now that I know God, I've got, my, I've got it all together. And all you people who don't believe in Jesus, anything that you think or say is just dead wrong, right? How do we know the God of truth and yet be humble and thinking about our lives and the people around us? All right, chapter three, we're going to see the whole category of gospel-centered leadership, right? This is critical, right? We live in a, in a country and an age where we want the big man with the loud voice to be the leader, right? Man or woman, right? This isn't a dig on any, anybody in office, right? We think about whoever's the biggest person with the biggest personality, that's the person we want up front, right? We do this in churches, and we put them, on a, uh, and we put them in conferences, and they're the big ones who speak, and we want to follow them. Right, that, that's, that's built into us as an American dynamic. Right? That's what it means to be an American. You want the big guy up front. All right. How do we think about what it means for, for, for me to be a leader, let alone for all of us to be leaders in our own capacities, when that's our cultural framework? Right? We, God has designed you to lead in various ways in all the areas of your life to lead. And how does the gospel shape that? Just, just throw this out there. Um, the Cross and Christian Leadership by D.A. Carson. Fantastic book. It's on the first four chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's like seven bucks on Amazon Prime. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. Right? How do we think about leadership? Right? How do we lead each other in light of a culture that loves big leaders and a Savior who washed dirty feet? Chapter three, gospel-centered thinking about church growth. Right? We want church to grow. How do we do it? Do we attach a big name... <laughs> And then we all, we all draft right behind that name, and that's how we get the church to grow. Or does God have a different metaphor in mind? Chapter 4, suffering, right? How does, how does the gospel shape how we suffer, right? Because suffering often causes us, it pushes us down, and it causes this pressure cooker to expose the idols of the heart that we then go after and cause more mess in our lives, right? How do we suffer with, the, with, the G, with Jesus Christ, who was under the very hand of God, the wrath of God for us, and he was faithful, how do, we, how do we grow to suffer well with Jesus? Because suffering is going to come into your life one way or the other in 2019, and it doesn't matter who you are. How do we do that with Jesus? Chapter 5, we're going to see disputes and holiness, right? When, when things go down, how do we not get political and start calling names and throwing people around? How do we grow in holiness and, and, and deal with the disputes that we have in our church? Chapter 6, along the same lines, we're going to see conflict. How does the gospel change how we have conflict? I'm sure 
that none of you have any conflict, none of you gotten any arguments, all of your marriages were just perfectly serene, nobody got in any arguments this last week, you didn't, you didn't bicker with anybody at work or anything like that, right? That describes nobody in this room. <laughs> but if it happens to, if you happen to have a conflict or an argument from time to time, the gospel changes how we have conflicts, right? How do we do that? that, that the conflict is a big area of mess in our lives, right? If you don't think that, you don't have a Facebook account, right? <laughs> right? Chapter 7, we're going to see how the gospel shapes how we think about marriage, gender, and sexuality. All right, this is a big ticket item right now, right? Going on in our culture, right? How do we think about gender? How do we think about marriage? How do we think about sexuality? All those things. Chapter 7 is going to help us be able to get some gospel framework for how we think about that stuff. What does it mean to be a man created in the image of God? What does it mean to be a woman created in the image of God? What does it mean to be a flourishing in masculinity? What does it mean to be flourishing in femininity? What, is, what, what does it mean that God created our bodies and that our bodies are good? Right, all those things. By the way, just a heads up. Uh, when we get to that section for the parents, I will give you a heads up if we're going to talk about any sex stuff, just so if you can make the decision if you want your kids in the room or not. We're not going to get graphic or anything like that, but just recognize that's, that's a decision that you need to make for your family and appropriateness. Um, chapters 8 through 11, how does the gospel shape how we think about culture, both in the church and in the culture around us, right? Because you could take this stuff and say, ah, the problem is you're just talking to all those worldly people out there, and they're all bad. <laughs> Don't talk to them, and things will be good. That is not right. <laughs> how do we think about the culture around us that, that God actually enjoys? There's parts of Manchester's culture that God enjoys, how do we think about that? How do we think about the dynamics where there's maybe problems, and how do we, how do we engage those issues, right? There's, how do we think about alcohol or weed, right? Those are cultural dynamics we've got to think about, right? Those are things that God's going to help us think through, chapters 8 through 11, the gospel and culture. Chapters 12 and 14, right? These are, if, you're, if you grew up in the church, these are like the, the spooky chapters of, the, of 1 Corinthians where you got all like the spiritual gifts like prophecy and tongues and, oh, and healing. We're going to, all right, well, how does the gospel shape how we have spiritual experiences and join the Spirit's life among us? Real simple, right? And, and not only that, but how do we think about gifts, like gifting? Not just like gifts, like tongues and prophecy and all that stuff. Like, how do we think about gifting? What does it mean to be gifted by God, right? What is that? That's that a spirit life among us. What, what's engaged that? Like, the gospel has something to shape how we think about that. Chapter 13, right? Read at so many weddings. How does the gospel shape how we think about love? right? We're desperately in need of how, what is love? <laughs> right? <laughs> we, we need God's help. That they, uh, something on the ceiling. I was like, something in the window? Uh. And then finally, chapter 15, death. Our culture is hell-bent on getting death out of the view of most churches, of, of, of our life together, right? Whereas in the old days, they would build houses so that they actually had like a little platform in the very back so that when somebody died, you could put their body in the back while, it's, while you're kind of getting all the funeral arrangements done, right? right? It was built in. Death was built in the very structure of how our houses were built. Churches, right? It, nobody, nobody buys church property anymore and puts the, the graveyard out in front of the church, do they? Right? You go to all these old New England churches or all the churches in, 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 in the original England, right? They've got all the graveyards out in front, right? And we kind of think of it as like morbid. But it was because the, the, the reality of death shaped how we thought about our, our life today, right? It shapes, not only gives us 
the, the sense of mortality, but it gives us a, a sense of the, the urgency of wisdom that we need for our lives and how we think about our lives, right? We've largely kind of pushed death aside, and not, regardless of the dynamic of we are a culture of death in a certain sense, but we, we push death aside. Death has a 100% success rate, just so you know. It's coming. How does the gospel hold our hand? How does Jesus Christ himself, in our desperate, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with, I am so afraid of death. Does that, that thought ever creep in on you? The thought of, of death is scary. Jesus comes in in our desperate need for help and gives us a hand because there's one thing that a culture that, that loves money, sex, and power, those things are driven because they're afraid of death, right? I'm afraid of death, so I need as much power so I can get as much as I want. I'm afraid of death, so let me get as much pleasure as I can right now, right? I'm afraid of death, so let me fill the void with as much stuff that I can buy. The gospel comes in and reshapes all of that so that we end verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has a way of taking the edge off of life. It puts us in the hands of a God who's pursued us, right? That's how we started the letter to begin with. A God who pursues people who don't have their act together, who are a hot mess and are broken, right? We're just basically a Jersey Shore on the inside, right? We are, a, we are crazy, and the gospel is that God has people in Manchester, you, me, our neighbors, that are his, and he intends to be a God that redeems and restores and renews and changes us to be like him so that we can join his mission, right? My prayer for us in going through 1 Corinthians, God, would you mature us as a church so that we can join your mission to be multiplied and becoming more churches so that more churches can say the church of God on Wilson Street, the church of God on whatever street, the church of God in whatever town because Jesus' good news is sufficient for the everyday mess of our lives, right? We don't need a church that gives us lots of things that we can't do or that aren't important. Jesus enters into the real mess of our lives. And that's what 1 Corinthians is going to show us. Jesus' good news is sufficient for the everyday mess of our lives. Let's pray. Father, as we, we've looked at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, I pray that you would give us faith and excitement and hope and eagerness and joy in what you're going to do in us and through us through the book of 1 Corinthians as we look at it over this next year and a half. God, would you work in our hearts so that we become more like Jesus because, God, we don't have our acts together. The everyday mess of our lives, we need your healing touch. So I pray that as we look through the book of 1 Corinthians, we would see that your good news is sufficient for all of our daily mess. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.